0: Chapter 6. Melchizedek and his Zion. The rescue of Lot and the meeting with Melchizedek. For whoso was faithful into the obtaining these priesthoods and the magnifying their calling and sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies, they become the seed of Abraham and the church and kingdom and the elect of God. Doctrine and Covenants 84.33-34. Offering Peace and Mercy to Mankind. Escorted out of Pharaoh's kingdom with highest honors, Abraham went, says Genesis, up out of Egypt. The words indicate, according to the Zohar, not only his travel route, but also that through his experience in Egypt, he had ascended spiritually. He had also been blessed in temporal matters, returning to the promised land very rich, says Genesis, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Apparently, some of his followers chose to remain behind in Egypt on account of the prosperity of the land, But upon Abraham, the blessing of prosperity rested as a divine gift. He prospered exceedingly, explained Joseph Smith, because he and his family obeyed the counsel of the Lord. His coming out of Egypt prefigured the experience of his descendants when the Israelites came up out of Egypt with great wealth, and when the Lord himself came out of Egypt as a boy. But wealth was not what Abraham sought, and while the pharaohs were busy amassing their royal fortunes and building impressive monuments to themselves, that we still that still awe travelers today, Abraham would continue to build Zion. His object, says Nibley, was not to conquer or impress, but to bless all with whom he came into contact, ultimately shedding the blessing that God gave to him on the whole human race. According to Ephraim the Syrian, God brought Abraham once again to the land of the Canaanites, who were sitting and dwelling in darkness. He shone over them like a light. The statement reminds us of the Isaiah passage about the Savior, that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The journey northward was probably broken up by a series of frequent stops due to the magnitude of the baggage and possessions they had. When they finally arrived at their former campsite near Bethel, where he had built an altar, he rebuilt it, and as he relates in the Genesis Apocryphon, I laid on it a sacrifice and an offering to the Most High God, and there I called on the name of the Lord of worlds, and praised the name of God, and blessed God, and I gave thanks before God for all of the riches and favors which he had bestowed upon me. For he had dealt kindly towards me, and had led me back in peace into the land. Abraham's constant gratitude for his blessings stands in sharp contrast to the tendency of most mortals. The crime of ingratitude, no doubt. "'President Joseph Fielding Smith is one of the most prevalent "'and one of the greatest with which mankind is afflicted. "'The more the Lord blesses us, the less we love him.' "'But the peace was soon interrupted "'when a quarrel broke out between Abraham's shepherds "'and those of Lot's. "'The patriarch had been a father to him, "'a friend kinder than many fathers,' notes one writer. "'Even so, according to Ephraim, "'Abraham did not consider himself a head or master over Lot, "'but rather a brother and friend.' And in the words of President Spencer W. Kimball, he sought peace among his brethren. Said Abraham, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdsmen and thy herdsmen, for we are brethren. As told by Ephraim, Abraham's humility and meekness won the day as he speedily eliminated the contention. He called Lot in love and made him an heir like himself. Although God had given the land to Abraham, he in turn gave to Lot the first choice of the land, invoking the admiration of many commentators." See Abraham's magnanimity, see the extraordinary degree of humility, see the height of his wisdom. By his self-denying and peace-loving conduct, he adverted contention with a loved one. Virtue humbles itself, whereas wickedness becomes arrogant. 19th century cleric Ashton Oxton observed that the incident demonstrates how little Abraham was influence, influenced by worldly motives. He was rich, but he cared little for his riches. According to another cleric, W.F.P. Noble, the uncle generously bestows on the nephew a share of his own property. More than that, as if he was the younger and also the weaker of the two, as if the land of Canaan had been promised to the other rather than to him, as if he had been the party who had received rather than conferred favors. In determining their respective positions, Abraham leaves the choice to lot. What self-denial, self-control, and self-sacrifice. What liberal and magnanimous generosity his. What a model of a Christian, this man. He seeks not his own. The language echoes the words of two of Abraham's descendants, Paul and Moroni, who both said of charity, or the pure love of Christ, that it seeketh not her own and still another cleric of the 19th century, Henry Blunt, marveled. Abraham proceeds with almost unparalleled tenderness and humility to address his younger and far less amiable kinsman. Is not the whole of the land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, I will go to the right, or if thou depart to the right, I then I will go to the left. What forbearance, what generosity, what true nobility of mind was here. Abraham does not claim as he might have done from the express promise of the almighty the whole for himself he does not as all must allow he would have been fully justified in doing even claim for himself the priority of choice he waives every right in favor of one far younger and less deserving humbly contenting himself with the portion which lot should leave him well did our lord declare blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of god and if, as Nibley points out, Abraham seemed to be generous to the point of lacking common sense, it was only because of his uncommon insight into life. By Abraham's actions, said Philo, he considered that he would thereby get peace, the greatest of gains. It was the peace of Zion that Abraham sought, that same unity of heart and mind that once existed in Enoch Zion. On this principle would Abraham's Zion be built, and on this same principle in the latter day Zion to be built. Abraham's treatment of Lot teaches us, noted President Kimball, that once we have found peace within ourselves, we must share it by being long-suffering, gentle, and meek, and by having the pure love of Christ for all we meet. Lot chose the luscious land near Sodom and went his way, knowing that he would still be within Abraham's protective sphere. For Abraham had told him, according to Jewish tradition, that he would remain close enough to come to his aid if necessary. The years of of daily association with his uncle Abraham, had wrought a profound effect on Lot. Everyone who walks with the righteous acquires some of their good ways and deeds, says Rabbi Eleazar, as happened with Lot, who walked with our father Abraham and learned of his good deeds and ways. Hence, when Lot came to Sodom, he followed Abraham's example of magnanimously offering hospitality and preaching the gospel. Indeed, Lot was one of the Lord's messengers, says the Quran, sent to preach to the cities of the plain, one early Islamic source expressly mentions that Abraham sent Lot as a prophet to the cities of the plain but the people of Sodom refused to listen for they were arrogant because of the bounty of the holy one because of the bounty the holy one had bestowed upon them and as wealthy men of prosperity they did not trust in their creator but in the multitude of their wealth the same indictment that prophet Nephi would make of his people whose errors were rem- a remarkable repeat of the sins of Sodom and brought a similar fate. The Sodomites had grown pow- proud, inhospitable, morally perverse, cruel, and corrupt in every way. Even their laws and judges were corrupt. Overweeningly proud of their numbers and extent of their wealth, they showed themselves insolent to men and impious to the divinity. They were savage and very sinful, notorious not only for their inhospitable, inhospitality, but also for their terrible vices, cruelty and murder. They distorted every fundamental rule which by which relationship is made possible and sustained. In some the Sodomites represent the negation of the value of most characteristic of Abraham Chesed or kindness. When Lot warned them plainly about their abominations, they taunted, If you are telling us the truth, bring down on us the punishment of God. In the ensuing years when Lot would visit Abraham, Lot complained to him of the iniquity of the people, but Abraham urged him to patience and practiced it himself. The neighbors of Abraham were cruel, covetous, and licentious, but Abraham never ceased to be on friendly terms with them. He ever manifested toward them an amicable disposition, treated them with noticeable courtesy, and did them signal favors. They are well They that are well need no physician, the Savior would say, as he likewise ministered among sinners. Lot's parting had been hard for Abraham, who loved him. It grieved me, says Abraham in the Genesis Apocryphon, that my nephew Lot had departed from me. In the midst of that grief, God came to comfort his friend Abraham, appearing to him in a vision at night and directing him to climb the highest mountain in the region, Ramat Hazor, and raise your eyes and look to the east, to the west, to the south, and to the north. Look at all this land which I am giving you and your descendants forever. It is a remarkable reality that God's greatest land grant to Abraham came as a reward for Abraham's magnanimity with the land God had already given him. The Zohar adds that as Abraham surveyed the land of promise, God actually raised him high above the land of Israel and made him to see how it is bound up with the four cardinal points. As Abraham gazed at the earth, he heard God promise that all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed for ever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. God's promise was not only sure, but literal. Not most not mere rhetoric, insist rabbinic texts. Although such text explains that this blessing came because God saw how Abraham loved the commandments, which commandments? There were none that Abraham did not keep, but the one he had just kept with unusual valor, was the one enforced since the beginning, the commandment to love one another, as God had told Enoch. Abraham's experience of being lifted up above the earth repeated that of Enoch, who, as Abraham had read, had been lifted up and shown the four cardinal directions of the earth. In fact, the Joseph Smith translation adds that God commanded Abraham to remember the covenant which I make with thee, for it shall be an everlasting covenant, and thou shalt remember the days of Enoch thy father. The Genesis Apocryphon tells that God commanded Abraham to actually walk around the perimeter of the entire land that God was giving him, and Abraham did so, a lengthy journey that must have taken weeks. It was apparently a legal formality denoting acquisition of the land. That this event comes right after Abraham's stay in Egypt is noteworthy, for it echoes what the pharaohs did at the said festival. In ritually walking around the perimeter of the field, simulating the land of Egypt granted to Pharaoh by the creator God. Abraham, as the true heir, now receives his land, instead itself, but a microcosm of the larger world that Abraham and his seed were to bless. What he saw on the journey was that the land was occupied, as Genesis reports, by the Canaanites and the Perizzites with their idolatrous ways. They dwelt at ease and in tranquility, according to the Jewish tradition, with none to challenge their peace, and yet could not harm Abraham. God was fulfilling his promise that his hand would be over Abraham, not only to bless him, but to allow him to be a blessing to others. And to maximize his opportunity to spread that blessing after Lot parted, Abraham moved to Hebron, a city of which strategic importance that King David would later choose it as his capital. Located on a height that at one point overlooks the cities of the plain, Hebron happened to be at the juncture where an important trade route branched off into three roads bustling with travelers it was an opportune location for abraham to reach out to as many of his fellow men as possible as he proceeded to establish a society sharply in contrast to that of nearby sodom in the most inhospitable of worlds says nibbly abraham was the most hospitable of men and always at his side was sarah his partner in extending hospitality she worked along with him and during her lifetime the doors of her house were always hospitably open and the lamp was always lit having been abundantly blessed by god abraham and sarah proceeded to show their gratitude by using their resources to bless others an illustration of the principle taught by Her- president harold b lee there is only one way to thank your heavenly father and that is by faithfulness in what he has given you in a way of time means and talent in the service of those less fortunate than you at hebron abraham made himself available to the many who sought him out according to one rabbinic source he was like a king of the entire civilized world he possessed great genius all of the kings of the east and west would come to seek his advice but abraham's door was equally open to the lowly and needy, as he welcomed everyone rich and poor kings and rulers the crippled and the helpless friends and strangers neighbors and passers-by all on equal terms His life is a supreme illustration of the truth expressed by President David O. McKay that the noblest aim in life is to make others' lives better and happier. Thus were Abraham and Sarah, biologically childless still, merciful parents to all in need. How many had come to consider Abraham as a father and provider, and Sarah as a mother and a friend? It is said that Abraham cultivated the friendship of the common people, and would go in search of the poor wayfarers needing assistance. The lesson is resembled to this day in Judaism. If the poor do not come to your house, you are obligated to seek them and bring them into your home, for that is what Abraham did. Or, as seen in light of the Savior's teachings, Abraham had already been privileged several times to speak face to face with the Savior, but now visited him daily as he lovingly reached out to the least of his brethren, seeking to bless them temporally and spiritually. Who is greater than Abraham, asked the Zohar, whose kindness extends to all creatures?" The Zohar tells that Abraham's residence at Hebron was a spring and pool of water that he used for those who required immediate immersion, for he sought to make known the true faith to the whole world. Anglo-Saxon tradition even seems to indicate that Abraham had a temple here. Through his love of his fellow beings, his sharing of the gospel, and his administering in temple ordinances, Abraham was reaching out to all within his power. Abraham was, says a modern rabbi, both friend of God and friend of man. Or, according to Hugh Nibley, Abraham was the friend of God because he was the friend of man. Abraham was practicing charity. Or, in Judaism, chesed. And only for those who followed his example can be included in his covenant according to Jewish tradition. Compassion is the one sure test of a true Abrahamic descent, insists the Talmud. When someone has mercy on God's creatures, we can be certain that he is descended from our father Abraham. In the New Testament, such Abrahamic acts of love and service are simply called pure religion. His action is a model for Latter-day Saints who are urged by President Gordon B. Hinckley, May we bless humanity with an outreach to all, lifting those who are downtrodden and oppressed, feeding and clothing the hungry and the needy, extending love and neighborliness to those around us. Let us open our hearts. Let us reach down and lift up. Let us open our purses. Let us show a greater love for our fellow men. Waging War and Meeting a Prince of Peace unfortunately as winston churchill observed the story of the human race is war it was the story also of abraham's day one of the most warlike generations ever echoing enoch's time and a foreshadowing the latter days if the abrahamic story mentions war rarely it is only because the lord let him out of harm's way and preserved him in relatively peaceful venues but the time did come when the ravishes of war touched even the great abraham just miles from where he resided in hebron came the combined military forces of a coalition of kings ravaging and laying waste they killed many and took some captives among them lot and his family as recounted in the genesis apocryphon one of the Lot's shepherds who had escaped came to abraham and told him that lot and all his flocks had been captured but that he was not dead and that the kings had taken the road of the great valley toward their territory, taking prisoners, ravaging, smiting, killing, and proceeding as far as the city of Damascus. Abraham wept for Lot. Josephus adds that Abraham was moved also with compassion for his friends and neighbors, the Sodomites, many of whom had likewise been taken captive. Abraham's compassion for these people is a remarkable commentary on his character. He did not shun the wicked, but befriended them in the hope of helping them. Only such compassion could move abraham to now take up arms like his descendant captain moroni abraham was a man of perfect understanding who did not delight in bloodshed but did join the liberty and freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery indeed abraham's ardent desire for the beginning from the beginning was to become a prince of peace but now as related in the genesis apocryphon abraham braced himself stood up and chose from among his servants those fit for war three hundred and eighteen men from his Zion community. As a modern writer comments, a man of peace, the battle was not of his seeking. And yet he did not trust in these, for they were but a small fraction of the king's forces, but in God, the champion and defender of the just. They were going in the strength of the Lord, and Abraham urged no one to come who was fearful or who had committed any trespass against God. If your hearts are turned toward heaven, he declared, you will go forth, and the Almighty will make your enemies like herbage, the speech was similar to that to what ancient Israel high priest would later make to soldiers before going to war. It was the same faith that Abraham's Nephi descendants would manifest when they trusted that if they had kept God's commandments, he would prosper and protect them. Abraham actually hoped to accomplish the rescue mission without the shedding of blood, taking gold and silver to ransom the captives. But he was prepared to engage in battle if needed be. With these few hundred men and joined by a few faithful friends, Abraham hurriedly sent out northward in pursuit. What the sources do not state, but what Latter-day Revelation makes clear, is that God had actually commanded Abraham to undertake this expedition. This is the law I give unto you, Abraham, and all mine ancient prophets and apostles, that they should not go out into battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I, the Lord, command them, and I, the Lord, will fight their battles." When Abraham arrived, he discovered what he had already suspected, that he was vastly outnumbered, and would not be able to ransom the captives with money. And although he knew that the Almighty was with him, he immediately began to deploy his limited resources in the most strategic manner possible. Using the cover of night to conceal the smallness of his forces, he divided up his men and found out in preparation for a sudden surprise attack from all four sides. But ancient sources also tell of miraculous happenings that evening. Not only was Abraham's way illuminated by planetary light, but he, but as he began the battle, he became aware of divine assistance extended to him in a miraculous way. He saw the Shekinah, attended by celestial hosts, lighting up his path, so that despite outward appearances, he understood that they who were with him were more than those against them. What must have seemed, by objective standards, an absurd attack soon proved to be a miraculous route, as, according to the Genesis Apocryphon, Abraham's vastly outnumbered army courageously gave battle to the king's soldiers, killing some and chasing the others until all were fleeing before him. He retrieved from them all that they had captured, all that they had looted, and all of their own goods. He also saved Lot and all his flocks, and brought back all the captives." He led them back home, and also, says the Zohar, back to repentance. It was truly the sword of the Lord and of Abraham, for the Holy One fought with him and slew his enemies. The royal armies that Abraham opposed, which surely have had their chariots, judging from other battles around the same time, and place of which we have record. But Abraham's strength that night came from him who had once told Abraham, I caused the wind and the fire to be my chariot, even the invincible Lord of creation. Abraham's small army availed him only because God had helped him. Conversely, God helped him in battle only after he had mustered his armed men and prepared himself militarily. God helps those who take all measures necessary to help themselves as seen in the life of Abraham's righteous descendant, Captain Moroni, a man man of God who took up the sword to defend his people, qualifying for the Lord's deliverance by first making use of the means the Lord had provided. Abraham's victory was miraculous, also for the fact that he lost not a single one of his men, not unlike later miraculous preservation of his 2,000 young Lamanite descendants serving under Helaman. And Abraham's victory was usually, was actually won before the clash of swords began, for according to the Midrash, his victory came not by strength of weapons or armor, but rather by, with prayer and supplication. For which he gratefully knelt again and gave thanks to the Almighty, sovereign of all the worlds. Not by the power of my hand, nor by the power of my right hand, have I done all these things, but by the power of thy right hand, with which thou dost shield me in this world and in the world to come. Hast your glory not fought alongside me and aided me? How could one man have prevailed against such an overwhelming force? They fell into my hands only because you helped me. Thus, it was that Abraham, contrary to human nature, became more humble, not more proud, in victory. Abraham's miraculous victory echoed that of his forefather Enoch, whom the Lord had strengthened with miraculous power as Enoch led the people of Zion to defend themselves in battle. According to Jewish tradition, Abraham's victory also foreshadowed the future, even the redemption of his descendants in Egypt on Passover night, as well as the still future redemption of Israel. At the end of days, the Messiah will deal just such a stunning total defeat to his adversaries christians recognize that the messiah as jesus christ seed of abraham whose final victory according to the early christian tradition in england began on a cross and was foreshadowed by abraham's remarkable victory against the kings of the earth of all men living says the saxon genesis concerning abraham never did anyone conduct with a small troop against so great a force a mere worthy warfare. Which thing was a type, insists the venerable bed, of the ultimate victory that would rescue us all? Therefore, well, did Abraham conquer his enemies and set his brother free, since he prefigured the one to be born from his own seed, who, through suffering on the cross, summoned the world from death. Such prefiguring of Jesus was only possible because as told by the early church fathers jesus was the strength of abraham in this encounter as abraham journeyed home with the ransomed captives and their property according to jewish tradition relieved and grateful peoples and their kings came to hail the conquering hero and express their gratitude and allegiance they made a cedar throne for abraham bowing to him as their king and even their god Suddenly, here was an unexpected opportunity laid at Abraham's feet to extend his influence over the land that God had already given him and to create political alliances and a dominion that could possibly continue to grow into a scope uh, commensurate with his mandate to bless all nations. Even from a purely defensive posture, the opportunity seemed uncannily timely, for according to a number of ancient sources, the coalition's original intent had been first to take Lot, and then Abraham, whose success in his missionary efforts had been extensive in turning many from their idolatry. The success may well have been significant enough to threaten the very order of things, including tribute based upon the economy of idolatry. Accordingly, for Abraham to now accept this offer of kingship would put him in a position to counter any further attack by the coalition, thereby securing the land that God had given him, and wasn't Abraham already the planet's rightful monarch, holding the same royal patriarchal authority over the, all the human race as held earlier by Adam and Noah in their patriarchal reign? Might this unusual offer even be God's vindication of that right, allowing Abraham the opportunity to seize was rightfully his and secure the land God had given him by accepting political power? It was a kind of rare opportunity that ambitious souls throughout history have craved, as seen in the careers of conquerors like Alexander and Napoleon and Genghis Khan. Commenting on the opportunity presented to Abraham, a modern rabbi, has observed that grateful nations often seek to confer kingship and even deification upon victorious military leaders. It takes great strength of character for a military leader to spurn the power and the adulation that is his for the taking. Only rarely does history produce such strength with the greatest example being the first, Abraham. Responding to the cheering crowds, he simply warded them off and said, The universe has its king, and it has its God. He declined any honors, urging that, If I am pleasing to you, and you desire to deal kindly with me, then love one another and deal peacefully together. Open the doors of your houses to the poor and the stranger and the wayfarer, and believe in the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, and serve him with all of your heart. Abraham's royal patriarchal authority and its exercise. Size was governed solely upon the priesthood principles of righteousness and humility, not upon the accolades of men. Indeed, it was precisely because Abraham did not set his heart upon the things of this world, nor aspire to the honors of men, that he had such power in the priesthood, as he presided over Zion. And the door to that Zion could not be opened by heaping praise upon Abraham. But only by obeying the eternal God that he taught concerning faith in Christ, repentance of sins, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. It was yet another occasion to bring men to Christ. Abraham's goal was not to change the map, but to change hearts. He would conquer not on, not by the sword, but only by love. But the king of Sodom had unfinished business. He came forward and asked for the return of his subjects that Abraham had rescued, while recognizing Abraham's right to the war booty. Give me the people, said the king, you take the property. In fact, by the rights of war, Abraham now owned not only the goods, but also the people, and he could have kept them as slaves, sold them, or demanded a ransom from the king of Sodom. He might have done so, notes one writer. Many would have done so. But Abraham had made a prior covenant with the Lord not to enrich himself in the rescue operation. The king of Sodom knew nothing of Abraham's covenant with the Lord, observed President Kimball, Abraham could have made himself rich by receiving the king's offer, but he had made an oath that he would not violate. Oh, that all of God's children could be so true. Abraham returned both the people and the goods, reconciling, renouncing his right to everything. He would have nothing to do with an offer of reward from the king of Sodom. Abraham's reward would come not from the kings of this world, but from Yahweh, Jehovah the Lord and creator of heaven and earth. Indeed, Abraham's motives had been pure from the very beginning of this enterprise, and he was not about to compromise his principles now. Here is the pattern to copy. Another monarch stepping forth to greet Abraham was Melchizedek, who, according to Genesis, brought forth bread and wine and blessed Abraham, who in turn paid tithes to Melchizedek. Genesis gives no hint as to who this mysterious Melchizedek was, who appears suddenly and then... will not be mentioned again. Some of the mystery is removed by other sources which tell that the reason his genealogy isn't given in Genesis is because he was not one of the patriarchs. But it is Latter-day Scripture as restored through Joseph Smith that gives us the most information about the remarkable Melchizedek. He was a man of faith who wrought righteousness, and when a child he feared God and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire and qualified for, and received his ordination to the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. Later, as told in the brass plates, Melchizedek ruled as a king over the land of Salem. And his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abominations, yea, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent, and Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days, Therefore he was called the Prince of Peace, for he did for he was the king of Salem, literally peace in Hebrew, and he did reign under his father. Now there were many before him, and also many afterwards, but none were greater. faith, righteousness, miracles, and preaching repentance, establishing peace such were Abraham's accomplishments also. If, as the proverb goes, it takes a prophet to understand a prophet, then Abraham and Melchizedek had found in each other a truly resonant soul. It was one of the most important meetings in history, a world summit of the two spiritual giants establishing the order of the kingdom of God. Abraham and his friend Melchizedek Details of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek are supplied in extra-biblical sources. Philo relates that Melchizedek and Abraham were already close friends and that melchizedek rejoiced in abraham's victory as if it had been melchizedek's own according to the conflict of adam and eve melchizedek welcomed abraham with joy and abraham when he saw melchizedek made haste and bowed and kissed him on his face then says the book of the bee melchizedek embraced him and blessed him and the genesis apocryphon tells that the bread and wine were but part of the food and drink that melchizedek provided Josephus adds that it was a veritable feast, in which Melchizedek hospitably entertained Abraham's army, providing abundantly for all of their needs. But the bread and wine apparently had more than nutritional value, for the Joseph Smith translation adds that Melchizedek actually broke bread and blessed it, and he blessed the wine, a clear echo of which is found in the messianic or eschatological banquet celebrated at Qumran and indicating, according to Milton, R. hunter, that the meal Melchizedek provided may have actually been the ordinance of the sacrament. For the church fathers, Melchizedek's meal was at least a type, according to the 3rd century bishop and martyr, Superion of Carthage. In the priest Melchizedek, we see prefigured the sacrament of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who offered that very same thing which Melchizedek had offered, that is, bread and wine, to wit his blood and body. As with so much of Abraham's life, then, this event held prophetic significance for the future, adumbrating in this case Christ's very atonement and the sacramental ordinance that would ever commemorate it, along with the great future messianic banquet where Christ will drink of the fruit of the vine on the earth with Abraham and all the righteous. The rabbis taught that Melchizedek instructed Abraham in the laws of the priesthood and transmitted the priesthood to him. Joseph Smith stated that Melchizedek taught Abraham about the priesthood and the coming of the Son of Man and ordained him to the priesthood, after the order of the Son of God, even the last law or a fullness of the law of the priesthood, which constituted him as a king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham's ordination and the accompanying ordinances showed in what manner to look forward to the Son for redemption. Jewish tradition adds that Abraham was also instructed by God himself on that occasion. In other words, as it indicated in the book of Abraham, Abraham received the remaining temple ordinances from Melchizedek. When Melchizedek brings out bread and wine according to Klaus Westermann, the Genesis text implies that he brings it out from his city and temple. A midrash identifies Salem with a temple while Josephus expressly states that Melchizedek had a temple. Pseudo-Yepolimus tells that Abraham was actually ushered into a temple in Melchizedek's city. Jewish tradition tells of a secret sign that God communicated to Abraham, the secret of the mystery of the Redeemer. Early Christian sources state that Melchizedek taught Abraham about the holy mysteries, and even made him to participate in the holy mysteries of redemption. These mysteries, or ordinances, of the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, were, says A Book of Mormon passage speaking of Melchizedek, giving after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, or it being his order, and this, that they might look forward to him for a remission of their sins. Abraham is a prototype, notes Nibley, for every follower of Abraham must receive the signs and tokens. Latter-day Revelation adds that the power of the Melchizedek priesthood includes the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens opened, and to commune with the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, which is the Church of Enoch. Well did one modern writer observe that on this occasion mysteries, revelations, visions of truth flooded over Abraham's soul. He it was who looked for a city whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In spirit was Abraham not now reveling in that city. Abraham's relationship with Melchizedek was not confined to this one incident. The Genesis account of Abraham paying tithes seemed to evidence, says one scholar, a tradition about a city and a sanctuary to which tithes were brought in early times. According to the Joseph Smith translation of that passage, Melchizedek receives tithes from Abraham, not just of the war booty, but of all that he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than which he than which he had needed, inasmuch as Melchizedek was the high priest and keeper of the storehouse of God, him whom God had appointed to receive tithes for the poor. The passage shows not only that Abraham willingly lived the law of consecration, but also that that the tithes he paid to Melchizedek of all that Abraham's substantial wealth could hardly have been paid in a single encounter while returning from the hurried military rescue operation. But this particular occasion must have been fraught with the joy for Abraham as he now received what he had so long sought, the priesthood after the order of the Son of God, that order of the priesthood that in times past allowed mortals to be translated to Enoch's city of Zion. And what joy must have been Abraham's to learn that Melchizedek was seeking that very same blessing of translation. According to the Joseph Smith translation, Melchizedek and his people of Salem sought for the city of Enoch, which God had before taken separating it from the earth, having reserved it unto the latter days or to the end of the world. At that final event, at the burning that shall take place, says the latter-day revelation, he that is tithed shall not be burned. He that is tithed, in other words, shall qualify to see the Son of God when he comes in glory. The paradigm for these blessings is Abraham, who not long after paying his tithing to Melchizedek would avoid the great burning sent on a wicked and miserly people, residing just miles away, and soon a- thereafter Abraham would be privileged to see and converse with the Son of God face to face. Abraham was also blessed temporally. In the Joseph Smith translation telling of Abraham's payment of tithing on everything he possessed, this verse immediately follows, And it came to pass that God blessed Abraham, Abram and gave unto him riches and honor and lands for an everlasting possession, according to the covenant which he had made and according to the blessing wherewith Melchizedek had blessed him. Jewish tradition adds that God did not withhold a single blessing from him. He blessed him with wisdom and understanding, knowledge and discernment, wealth and prosperity, gave him possession of heaven and earth, and made him master of the world. Why did the Lord bless Abraham, as Genesis says, in all things? As a reward, says the Midrash, for Abram's paying tithing to Melchizedek, As with so many other principles of righteousness, Abraham remains the great exemplar of the blessings of tithing, the blessings of Zion. By this principle, declared Joseph F. Smith, it shall be known who is for the kingdom of God and who is against it. By this principle it shall be seen whose hearts are set on doing the will of God and keeping his commandments, thereby sanctifying the land of Zion unto God, and who are opposed to this principle and have cut themselves off from the blessings of Zion. Blessing is, in fact, what this episode of Abraham and Melchizedek is all about, says the Zohar. The passage teaches that the righteous bring blessings to the world, and for their sake are all of the inhabitants blessed. Salem the Great and Melchizedek the Great. By his tithing, Abraham was sanctifying the land of Zion, not only the land where he resided, but also Melchizedek's Salem, referring to in a Samaritan source as Salem the Great. Where was that great city? It has been assumed by many that Salem was Jerusalem. Based on a reading of the Psalms passage stating, In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel, in Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. But as Fred Horton has pointed out, the same passage is read as a chiasm, which showed just the opposite, that Zion is a city in Judah, while Salem is a city in Israel, north of Judah. Horton explains why the rabbis would have wished to identify Salem with Jerusalem. Since Melchizedek was the first priest of God in the Bible, it would be natural to think of his place of priesthood as being Jerusalem, the one legitimate seat of sacrificial worship. However, continues Horton, identifying Salem with Jerusalem contradicts a very early identification of Salem as being near the city of Shechem, located some 25 miles north of Jerusalem at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Most significantly, the one ancient source mentioning Abraham entering Melchizedek's temple locates that temple in Melchizedek's city at the foot of Mount Gerizim. A number of modern scholars have identified Melchizedek's Salem as being near Shechem. In the end, however, the important thing about Salem is not where it was, but where it went. One source says that Melchizedek built the city on a place called Zion, while a Jewish midrash makes the intriguing claim that Salem is a celestial Jerusalem. In fact, we know from Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis that Melchizedek and his city of Salem were eventually taken up to join the translated city of Enoch Zion, the very city that they had been seeking. And assuming that Salem had translated was translated in the same manner as was Enoch's city, people, buildings, and all, then part of what ascended with Melchizedek had actually been built with Abraham's substantial tithes. Abraham had thereby literally helped build what became part of of the zion above and thus was reenacted in abraham's day and with his preparation the great event of pre-flood times the spectacular extension of earthly zion earthly city of zion to heavenly realms exactly when salem was translated how long after the momentous meeting between abraham and melchizedek we are not told as for melchizedek he would be gone but not forgotten, for his name would become the name of the very order of the priesthood that he bore, even the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. The change was made by the church in ancient days, perhaps by Abraham himself, out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being, to avoid too frequent repetition of his name, and because Melchizedek was such a great high priest, so great in fact that the early Christians recognized him in foreshadowing of some, someone even greater. As the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, so is Christ the true king of righteousness. And as the name Salem, where Melchizedek reigned, means peace, so Christ is the true king of peace. Hence, in traditional Christianity, as Jerome would say, Melchizedek represents to us Christ, and the church of Christ. The symbolism is even richer in restored Christianity. The Joseph Smith translation tells not only that Melchizedek was of the order of the Son of God, and not only that his people sought and obtained the heavenly city of Enoch, but that Melchizedek himself was called the King of Heaven by his people, and was called the Prince of Peace. Both titles point to Christ, who is foreshadowed by Melchizedek, leads his people to Heaven where he reigns in peace forever. Melchizedek's title, Prince of Peace, also has a distinct echo of, of Abraham, who, from the time he had left Ur, was seeking to be a prince of peace. It was yet another irony of Abraham's life that his dear friend Melchizedek, epitomizing what Abraham sought to be, would be taken to that heavenly city that Abraham sought, and thereby leave Abraham behind. Abraham had indeed looked for a city which hath foundations, but as yet had not been found, had found it not, confessing that he was but a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. But Abraham now had all the Authority of Melchizedek, who, having thus ordained and blessed the man appointed by God to bless the world, was ready to lead his city in ascending to the city of Enoch. It was likely the most important ordination and blessing Melchizedek ever gave, his spiritual magnum opus, his great and final act before leaving this world for a higher realm. No wonder ancient rabbinic tradition commenting on the blessing Melchizedek gave to Abraham insist that when they heard this heaven and earth and all creation rejoiced and were glad for the kingdom of god was now fully established and in the person of abraham who held all the priesthood and authority of his predecessors when such a thing would be repeated in the person of joseph smith it would again be a cause as the prophet joseph would write for heaven and earth and all creations to rejoice and to be glad as for Abraham, having been faithful unto the obtaining of God's priesthoods available to him and the magnifying his calling, he would yet experience along with his wife what latter-day revelation calls being sanctified by the Spirit unto the renewing of their bodies. As we shall see, it was that very renewal that would make possible their having posterity, the very reason that Abraham remained behind when Melchizedek ascended, and for those among Abraham's posterity who would follow his example of obtaining and magnifying the Melchizedek priesthood, The same blessing of renewal is promised, whereupon they become, in the ultimate sense, the seed of Abraham, and the church and the kingdom, and the elect of God. Only then do they qualify to receive all the blessings of Abraham, meaning all that that God the Father has.